I really do miss all of you. Uh, I miss being able to greet you with hugs. Uh, I miss seeing your faces. I miss being able to look out at your faces while I'm teaching and and just see your attention and see your love for God and your love for us and your love for each other. Um, but it really is true, and, and it's already been prayed, and we get to recognize this, that the physical distance that we're dealing with, the physical separations that we're dealing with, are truly artificial. That we get to recognize that we are all seated together in Christ at the right hand of the Father. And, and I really pray that for myself, for each one of us, that we will keep that mindset firmly in place, that we are still one, we are still united in Christ. Uh, we will get through this very strange time, but that we not believe the lie of the enemy that we are alone, that uh, the Father is with us, will never leave us or forsake us, but also that we are always with the fellowship of the body. And uh, I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but I, I'm really praying for myself and for each one of us that God uses this time of physical separation to take us even deeper into the authority and the power that we have to pray for one another, uh, to expand our range of prayer for one another, that we pray for many of the things that we've been studying in past weeks since January, uh, but that we would also expand our, our circle of prayer, that even brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that uh, you don't know and maybe have never prayed for before uh, would become part of our our shouldered responsibility of prayer for one another, that we would be uh, strong interceders. Well, uh, let's see if I can pull up the screen because right now it disappeared. Um, so I'm getting a Adobe Photoshop screen. Don't know if I can get back to my screen. I think so. You got it, Reg. Good job. Okay, excellent. So what we're looking at today, if I can uh, get my board to draw is disciples who cannot be silent. And we're heading into what, what has always been known in the church as Holy Week. And so we're, we're looking at the final week of Jesus' life on earth. And as we look at a few of the events today leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection, um, today we're looking at the event where he comes into Jerusalem and all that goes on uh, around him and because of him. But one of the things I want to look at before we look at the specific events of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem is I'd like us to spend a, a few minutes looking at the heart and the mind the purposes of Jesus and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And so Jesus from, from his approach to this was already recognizing 
the purpose of his pursuit, the purpose of his direction into Jerusalem was to be killed. And if you drop down to the chapter to verse 51, uh, he says this, or, or it says this, when the days were approaching for his ascension. So the, the writer, Luke here, he's actually looking already past the crucifixion and even the resurrection of Jesus. And he's looking at where this ends. This whole horrendous process that's going to take place over the next week finally ends in, in the triumphant ascension of Jesus Christ to sit at the right hand of the Father. But it says this, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And if you'll turn to, I'm going to try to get my screen back. It has disappeared with a bunch of Xbox stuff in front of me. Um, let me see if I can get rid of that. Okay, I'm back. Um, so that was Luke 9.22, is that Jesus is looking to his death in Jerusalem. 9.51 is despite that, he is determined. And I read one translation that, that looking at the meaning of that word determined, uh, that Jesus set his face like stone toward Jerusalem. And that determination carries with it the recognition that in Jesus' heart and mind, nothing was going to stop him. Nothing was going to get in the way. And if you'll turn ahead to Luke 18, 31 through 34, we read these words. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples sadly understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said to them. So even though Jesus is, is saying, he's referring to prophecy that would be fulfilled concerning Messiah's suffering. That he would be mocked, he would be mistreated, he would be scourged, he would be killed. But then triumphantly, on the third day, he would rise again. And we also have in John, chapter 12, verse 30, verse 27 through 33. So if you want to flip over there briefly, John chapter 12, starting at 27. And Jesus says this, now my soul has become troubled. And again, this is after Jesus has now entered Jerusalem. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered and said, this voice has come not for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. 
Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So that we keep saying this, Jesus knew he was headed to Jerusalem for death. Jesus knew that he was absolutely destined, if he was going to cooperate with the purposes of the Father, he was going to set aside his own health, his own safety, his own convenience, his own well-being. And Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, says that he humbled himself to the point of death, obedient to the point of death, because that's what we needed. We needed a Savior. And Jesus chose obedience to the point of death. And there's, there's, uh, we won't go read the whole thing, but in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 27, we have a discussion between uh, Jesus and Peter and the disciples. And Jesus has just once again told them that he's headed to Jerusalem to die. And actually, we're going to go ahead and go to John, to Matthew 16. Um, but when he says this, Peter tells him and rebukes Jesus. Now imagine that. Here's Peter, good old Peter. And, and he's recognizing that Jesus' thinking is bad. Jesus' thinking is in error, and Jesus needs to be corrected. And so he takes Jesus aside. At least he didn't want to embarrass Jesus. He takes Jesus aside and says, God forbid it, Lord. That shall never happen to you. So while Jesus is talking about the fulfillment of hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy resulting in his death, Peter rebukes him and says, that'll never happen. And in verse 23, we read Jesus' response, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's interests. And so, again, what we see here in, in Matthew 16, that Jesus is making it real clear, he's choosing the Father's will. He's choosing the Father's purposes, even to his own death. And so, Again, we get to recognize nothing about what we're celebrating, even though it's tragic because our sin led to it. Nothing about what we're celebrating in the days ahead over the death of Jesus Christ was accidental. Nothing about it was, from the Father's perspective, nothing about it was something to be avoided. That Jesus, the Lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, that Father, Son, and Spirit had joyfully prepared a plan for our rescue joyfully prepared a plan for our rescue. And Hebrews 12 backs that up by saying that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. That he was not looking to be rescued. He was looking to accomplish something that only his death could accomplish. And now as, as, as disciples, 
that while we're dealing with a, a variety of strange situations, that one of the things we talked about two weeks ago was that we overcome fear by act of love. So we talked a couple of weeks about recognizing that if perfect love casts out fear, that's the Father's perfect love. But the, one of the ways we join with Christ in his purposes is that right now we're actually looking at moments of fear as a time when we get stronger and go further in loving others. So while you're stuck at home with your family, deeper love with family. If you're, if you're stuck with a, a smaller circle of people to interact with, even deeper and more proactive love with them. But we're also looking at this. Um, that we're choosing the Father's purposes over our own. So one of the things Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, is he said, seek his kingdom first. His kingdom first. And he said, then all the other things we need would be added to us, not because we're scrambling after them, not because we, we make them our priority, but because we make God and his kingdom our priority. And, and this is where it gets, I, I would say, very personal and challenging for every one of us, because one of the things I would encourage you to be praying for, even this afternoon, uh, is this this question? His Father, where in my life am I putting my purposes above yours? And there's no one answer to that because it could be completely different for you than it is for me, completely different uh, for the person sitting next to you right now than it is for you. But here's one thing I'm pretty confident of, uh, absolutely confident of, in fact, is that every single one of us has areas we have not yet matured into the mind of Christ. Every single one of us has some area of our thought life, some area of our habits, some area of our how we use our time, some area of how we speak, how we treat others. There is beyond a shadow of a doubt for each one of us, some area of our life where without guilt or condemnation, but simply repentant awareness, we recognize I'm not yet fully expressing the heart of Jesus Christ and seeking the Father's purposes. So I'm going to encourage for myself and for each of us that we would actually make that a focus of prayer. And again, there are some people that I've worked with um, at a personal level that I recognize as soon as you ask them where they're, where they're going wrong, they'll come up with 1,001 ways where they're wrong and be buried under guilt and condemnation and a sense of failure. That is not the Father's purpose in this. The Father's purpose is that you would seek out an area 
for growth. Not condemnation. So if we're going to have the heart of Jesus, we need the full heart of Jesus. So the full heart of Jesus is that we are forgiven. The full heart of Jesus is that we are covered in his blood. We're getting ready to celebrate the crucifixion. And, and how bizarre that we would celebrate the crucifixion and then live in condemnation as if the crucifixion wasn't effective. So even if the Holy Spirit, even if the people around me, or even if things we're already aware of, we know where we need to grow to put the Father's purposes, to put the kingdom first ahead of our own fears, our own conveniences, our own agenda, that we would be pursuing that with a sense of incredible gratitude that we are forgiven while we address the area where we need to grow. Not in condemnation but with power and authority and a sound mind, not in the fear of his judgment, but in the confidence that he is equipping us in the life of Christ. And now I, I would like us to, I'm going to try to get to, this next thing. Now I would actually like us to look at this triumphant, at this triumphant entry. So back to the passage that was read for us. So let's go back to Luke 19 and just gather a few things from this. And one of the things that I, that I liked about this passage, if we can try to picture this. Um, so the 12 disciples travel with Jesus everywhere. But we know from other passages, there were many other disciples, and they weren't always around. So obviously the 12 were, were committed to travel with Jesus. D Jesus did not require that every disciple travel with him to the next little town. He was looking for disciples who gave their life to him, not necessarily who gave their travels to him. And so as Jesus was traveling and working and ministering, he now enters Jerusalem, and it says in verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. So that this was a crowd of disciples. And this shouldn't surprise us in 1 Corinthians 15, and we won't, we won't go read it. I promise, actually, we won't go read it. But in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is describing the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he, and he talks about the fact that in the, in the 40 days in which Jesus was on planet Earth, um, and I think every now and then I bump into a believer who's surprised that after his resurrection, Jesus remained on planet Earth for 40 days, and he was coming and going. He wasn't just hanging out at the, at the, at the pub or hanging out at the beach. He came and he went, and he, he disappeared and he reappeared, but for 40 days, he kept ministering to believers. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us this amazing truth that at one point, 
Jesus appeared to over 500 of the brethren. So he didn't just say 500 people. There were 500 disciples of Jesus who got to listen to Jesus speak and teach between his resurrection and his ascension. And I bet some of those people were in this crowd. But here's what the crowd was shouting. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And keep that in mind while you turn back to Matthew 21. And we have the same event, but we have a, a slightly different perspective shared with us. So in Matthew 21, it says this, the crowds, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord in Luke 19. In Matthew 21, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I would like us to recognize something. Go to Psalm 119. I'm sorry, Psalm 118. Now we have coming up this week um, the Jewish feast. Of Passover and Jews all over the planet will be celebrating that Passover and they will be many of them will be celebrating it with the Seder feast and there is an order of service to the Seder feast and there's some indications that that Jesus and disciples were also following much of the order of that Seder so even though there's been a lot of things added through the years the basics of what Jews celebrate today were already being celebrated in the time of Jesus but in Psalm 18, which is read by, by all these observant Jews all around the planet, I would like you to go to Psalm 118, verse 22. And so while, while Jews are celebrating their Passover history with God, their rescue from the slavery of Egypt, and God's promise of the Messiah, here's what we see in Psalm 118, in verses 22 through 26. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And this passage very passionately and clearly refers to Messiah. But even though he was rejected, and 1 Peter 2.7 echoes this, that the, the, the rejected stone becomes the chief cornerstone. And the picture there is that what God, what God is building is anchored in Jesus himself. 
Jesus isn't just one brick in the foundation. Jesus is the very stone from which everything else derives its direction, its identity, its purpose. Everything about the, the flow and the purpose of the body of Christ is anchored in Jesus Christ, who even though he was rejected, was then chosen by the Father. And so this crowd of disciples, probably more than they even understand, are quoting from this messianic prophecy as they welcome Jesus into Jerusalem with verse 26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we get to recognize once again, this is a plan that stretches across all of human history. In Daniel 9, 24 through 27, Actually, let's go there. We have the promise of, of a coming Messiah, that Daniel is prophesying the coming of Messiah, and he takes that prophecy all the way to the end times. But starting in verse 924, he says this. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people. Talking to Daniel, meaning the people of Israel, and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So, God, here he's saying, What I'm getting ready to prophesy for Israel is about majestic, ultimate purposes. This isn't just one day a good thing's going to happen for Israel. He's saying, what I'm getting ready to prophesy will result in the ending of transgression and the end of sin. What I'm getting ready to prophesy is going to be how all of your sin is atoned for and fully paid for. What I'm talking about and prophesying for you, Daniel, is how righteousness will be brought into the universe to reign for eternity. And all of prophecy will finally be wrapped up in the anointing of the most holy. So he's talking about big purposes, but then he adds this in verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be 70 weeks, I'm seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. We're not going to continue reading the prophecy because that goes on to end times. But here he's actually saying the seven and, and the 62 is 69 sevens. And there's a lot of discussion through Daniel that makes it real clear. This is about, let me see if I can get my and to work. This is about 483 years. The decree that launched this was made by uh, Artaxerxes Longinimus in 445 BC. And it was years of 360 prophetic days. So again, Daniel lays out all the details. So this is just not a matter of somebody's opinion or somebody's guesswork that Daniel is making clear 
that this 483 years are not calendar years or solar years. They are prophetic years of 360 days exactly. And there are plenty of other people way better at this than me that have looked at that and recognized that takes us to this day as Jesus enters Jerusalem. There are others that take that prophecy to the point of his, uh, of his crucifixion. But here's the bottom line. Whether it takes it to the day he enters Jerusalem or takes it to the day of his crucifixion, depending on whose Matthew you trust, here's the bottom line. Daniel made a prophecy 600 years before Jesus indicating when Messiah would be presented to Israel and be cut off. And now we are in the final week of Jesus' life, and this event is happening. And one of the things that Jesus does along with this, if you go back to Luke 19, it's a really tragic moment for Jesus. So in Luke 19, we have Jesus getting ready to approach Jerusalem. After, after the, the disciples have praised him, after he's told uh, the Pharisees that even if the disciples were silent, the stones themselves would welcome him. And it's worth recognizing what's going on here because Jesus, in verse 41, says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave you in one stone upon another. Because, and listen to this, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, all of Israel had the prophecies of Daniel. All of Israel could do the math just as easily as, as any American with a calculator or without a calculator. Every Jew in Jerusalem, and certainly the Pharisees and the Bible scholars, the scribes, the teachers of Israel, absolutely had that knowledge to say, Messiah should be coming right now. And we even have at Jesus' birth, we have both Simeon and Anna that have been longing for Messiah, and they both greet him and prophesy over him and over Mary because they recognize it is the time of Messiah. We're approaching that time, and they were waiting for it. But now the prophesied moment for Messiah's presentation is here. And here's what Jesus is saying, Jerusalem, your Messiah just visited you. And because you ignored my visitation, now destruction will come upon you. And so we have in this context, we have disciples praising Jesus. We have disciples acknowledging that through prophecy, this is the chief cornerstone. That even though he was rejected by men, has been chosen by God to be the foundation of God's work on planet Earth. That this is the one who is blessed because he comes into our lives in the name of the Lord. And we get to receive him with those disciples. But one of the things that I hope we, we take with this, 
Jesus said, you know what? If my disciples were foolish enough to be silent, the stones would speak up. This day is so important, my arrival would have to be announced. And now we have in 2 Corinthians 6, we have this, that today is the day of salvation. And that one of the things that, that Paul is describing there is our recognition that every day you and I wake up since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus until the day he returns, we are living in the day of salvation. You and I are participants in the day of salvation. And so we get to, we get to determine with God, Father, please help me. I do not want to be a silent disciple. I do not want to pretend that I, I do not understand what needs to be announced and what needs to be shared and what needs to be broadcast. And as we've talked about numerous times, not every one of us is called to be an evangelist, but every single one of us is actually called to be an announcer. Every single one of us is called to be a witness that having seen and known Jesus, now we get to passionately agree with God that we will not be silent. We will not give the stones a reason to get in front of us and start talking. That might be a really interesting Disney moment, but that is not the plan. The plan is that you and I would speak, that you and I would give testimony to this Savior who fulfilled hundreds of years of prophecy, and that we could just patiently, graciously, uh, in gentleness, not to win a debate, but to introduce a friend to a friend, that we would share the truth of Jesus with those around us, that we would be disciples who cannot be silent, because we just humble ourselves enough to comprehend, Father, one of the most loving things I can do for my unsaved friends, in fact, the single most loving thing I can do for them is to introduce them to Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I thank you that you know what you're doing. Father, even through the chaos of Israel's slavery, you already knew and had prophesied to Abraham the day of their rescue. And even in the time of that rescue, Father, you gave them signs and symbols that pointed to the day when the perfect lamb would be slaughtered to pay for our sins. And Father, Peter calls Jesus the chief cornerstone. And Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb. And we get to agree with this, that our lives will be founded and directed with Jesus at the core that our, our understanding of why we can enter your presence with grace, without fear, because we're acceptable and we're worthy and we're clean and we're holy, because we comprehend that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, the lamb of God, who sacrificed his life for the sins of the world. But Father, most especially for each one of us to say this, most especially for me. Thank you, Father, for this sacrifice. Thank you for the triumph of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem where he was presented for who he really was. Thank you for the handful of disciples who saw it, Father. And now help us to be strong and courageous as disciples who share it. We ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen.